This is Mental Work, the podcast unpacking the challenges faced by early career psychologists. And I'm your host, Dr. Brunwyn Milkins. Hey, mental workers, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are talking about this topic Can I be a good therapist if I have lived experience? This is one of those topics that I feel like everyone asks of themselves and of each other's. Can a therapist be a good therapist if they have lived experience of mental illness? Is it possible? It's something I see a lot on Facebook and on Reddit. And here to unpack it all with us is friend of the podcast, Carly Dober. Hi, Carly. Hello, Bronwyn. Carly is a psychologist and she's also a director of the Australian Association for Psychologists Incorporated. That's a real mouthful to say. I had to be really careful with that. (laughs) (laughs) Now do it 10 times fast. I know, right? Um, (laughs) Thank you so much, Carly, for coming back on. Listeners, you may remember Carly from previous episodes, such as Therapist Receiving Therapy and the other one, which I can't remember the title of. Do you remember, Carly? I think it was um, Exploitation. It was. It was Exploitation. That was great. Mm -hmm. I really liked Mm -hmm. that one. And now we're going to unpack this. So we've got a few things that we're going to explore today. We're going to talk about peer support workers, some of the myths to do with lived experience. We're going to talk about some of the statistics to do with mental illness. And at the end of the pod, we'll give you just some practical tips for managing this space. Sound good, Carly? Sounds bad, but can't wait. I think the first thing I wanted to do to jump in was actually start from your experience, Carly. Like what makes you interested in this topic? Oh my God, everything. So my own lived experience of being um, a carer and someone who has um, managed and responded to mental illness for a long time Um, and then working in the mental health space, feeling like I couldn't be a good therapist if I had lived experience and that I needed to hide it. And then my first foray into working in mental health was working in peer-led roles, which really championed Um, everything about what I had lived through, which was really radical and it really changed the trajectory of how I felt about myself and my future. Wow. So your first introduction into being a mental health professional was through the peer-based roles. Yeah, I was very, very lucky. Can you tell us about that? How did you find out about them? How did you get involved? What was it like? Oh my gosh. Um, I was working in just crappy jobs. Like I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to work with people. But I didn't know what that would look like. I was so burnt out from caring full time and doing year 12 that I just worked overseas, came back in retail and did that for a few years. And then I had a bit of a mental breakdown in front of my mom. I was like, I hate my life. Uh, and she was like, you're 21, you'll be okay. And I was like, you don't understand. <laughs> yes, the cry of all 21-year-olds. <laughs> and she was like, what do you want to do? I was like, I want to be a psychologist, but I'm too dumb. And she was like, can Aww. you shut up? <laughs> And did that help? Did, were you like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, I actually needed that. And I applied for a course and I got in straight away and I was like, oh, my God, it was just a bit of a time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I thought knowing how long I was always looking forward, knowing that um, my path was probably going to be a bit different because I was a carer and because I was, you know, um, still kind of existing in a bit of a um, tricky space, that my path was going to be a bit more difficult than people who were just, you know, um, young supported to do whatever they wanted at uni so I thought I really have to bump up my work experience and um, because I was on forums 24 7 like how do I best do this 
So I applied for a lot of volunteer roles and I got um, one um, with the Office of the Public Advocate visiting Thomas Embling while I was in year one of my undergrad and also then what is now um, Wellways, the Mental Illness Fellowship Helpline, which is completely peer-led. And from day one entering the um, helpline, I was blown away by the training and how everyone was just like, yep, cool, you have mental illness. Anyway, these are the hours you have to like show up. It was just not a big deal. And that was really radical because I held all this stuff so um, tight to myself. And it was just, it was just such a change. It was beautiful. That's amazing. And I'm so grateful that was your experience because I am imagining an alternative reality where you walk into that workplace and it's like, I've, I've lived experience of mental illness. I have mental illness and people remain silent and shocked. And then there's a heavy air and you just sense the disapproval or shame in the room. But it sounds like your experience was the opposite of that. It was. And, you know, I, I, in my head before I started this, I was like, there's going to be so many just dear John, you did not get this job because of whatever. And I thought I really just had to keep it very quiet. So that was a shock. And it was really lovely just being around a group of people who just had lived life and had disruptions to their health. And it was just not a big deal because I think I had internalized a lot of shame my whole life about this stuff. So it was, it was, it was fab. That's amazing. And you mentioned the training as well. Could you just tell us what some of that training was? Oh, it was amazing. I was, I had really no idea about, you know, the lived experience world, the research that had gone into it, anything at all. And there was, I think, about 10 hours of training where they went into how hospital rates reduced when there was a person with lived experience just to kind of talk to and support people and be with people in hospitals or in ambulances and findings around the world of how transformative and needed um, it was for people to sit in that shared story whether you shared everything in your story or just literally being there and being a peer worker yeah it, it blew my mind that's fantastic it's really interesting to hear that research as well like I hadn't considered it before but there is a huge literature supporting the evidence of peer-based workers yeah there's a whole world out there and I was um also like kind of while I was listening to the training, while I was in that role, because I worked my way up to team leader within a year there and I loved it, but I was waiting for my undergraduate degree to to go into it. And I understand that the undergraduate degree has to like pack a lot of stuff in there, but then nothing in postgrad for the three years went into it as well. And I was like, oh, there's a whole world out there of really important stuff. Why aren't we learning about it? But anyway. No, it's so true. It's completely neglected this whole world. Whereas we know from the research that peer-based interventions, for example, are really effective in helping people reduce their risk of sex, sexual behaviours that are risky or problematic drinking. Self-harm. Oh, self-harm as well. Yep. Yeah. And so there is so much evidence to this because there's that element, one of the ways that peer-based interventions are effective is that sense of expertise. So sometimes people don't want to hear it from their doctor, hey, stop self-harming. But if they have a peer who has gone through it and, hey, this was a challenging time for me, I know the urges are really strong, here's what helped me, they actually are more likely to accept that information and recognise it as legitimate and potentially put it into their own lives. Yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Because if you if you are talking to someone who is from a different culture, background, who doesn't you don't feel has, you know, walked even like a, a 
a meter in your shoes, it's quite hard to take what they say as, oh, this is achievable for me when I'm in this much distress or pain. So yeah, amazing. Yeah. And another way that they work is actually by reducing this idea of public stigma. So I'll tell the listeners, so there's two types of stigma. There is self-stigma, and that is when you have a prejudiced attitude towards yourself for no particular reason, it's just very negative. And there is public stigma, so that is societal negative prejudices towards a particular group of people for being a member of that group. And we know that mental illness stigma is quite high. One of the things about public stigma is that we can internalise that and then that becomes self-stigma. So if you're hearing all the time that people with depression are super lazy and they should just get over it, pull up their bootstraps, then you're going to be thinking, I'm lazy, I should just get over it. So by meeting someone a peer, you automatically cut that out. It's like they can't be judging me because they've been through the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, here's somebody in front of me who accepts me. And we also know that stigma literally has an impact on the distance that people keep from other people. So I've seen this a lot in research that people have measured, for example, attitudes towards people with a diagnosis of schizophrenia and they'll have a social distance scale and they will want to keep their distance more from people with schizophrenia than from a person with asthma or depression. It's incredible. Wow. Yeah. So by having, say, somebody who's a peer who's also has schizophrenia sit beside you, that makes a huge difference. It's saying you are acceptable. I don't treat you as a diseased person like you're human. That's amazing. It is. Yeah. yeah I love that. I'm very interested in this literature. <laughs> oh, my. You're yeah, telling me. Yes. It's so good. And, and I just want to hear from you, Carly. So you started out in these peer-based roles. I'm just curious, maybe this is too big of a jump, but I'm curious how that start has influenced your work now as a psychologist. Oh, it actually helped me kind of, I don't know if this sounds strange, but it helped me kind of connect back to the human at the centre of the psychology research and study because I found um, I was a bit shocked doing my undergrad and postgrad. I was like, oh, we're going to be working with people and there's not much kind of that people stuff. And so having that like the background of the science and kind of like philosophy paired with the work experience of managing with people and my my own human experience about mental health, it complemented it very well. And it just reminded me, well, why am I doing this? What's it all for? Oh, well, for people like me, mom, everyone who has at this stage impact like experienced mental illness, it was really helpful. It sounds like it gave you purpose and meaning to your work. Pretty much. Yeah. Which is incredibly important rather than just being like, okay, here's some abstract thing that I'm doing, which won't make an impact to anyone. It sounds like you could see the direct impact potentially on the people around you by entering this work. Pretty much. And then also it was interesting when I was fielding calls, them asking me, well, what do you do with yourself now? And I'm saying, I'm studying uni, I want to be a psychologist. And then that's kind of like peer stuff there as well. You know, I have a current and previous experience of mental illness and I'm at uni and I want to be in this field. And that was, they were like, oh, I've always thought about doing that. Well, why not? So hope for the future. It's, yeah. And that's that's a really amazing thing that with the peer-based interventions, you can have someone in front of you be like, look, I was in this dark place and it was scary and I didn't think potentially that I could get out of it, but now here I am. I'm talking to you right now and I've got futures and I've got dreams. I think that's really powerful. Yeah, so did I. So I think it actually really helped me 
And then if I was also going through a bit of a tough period while studying, because, you know, you're studying for a minimum of six years, yeah. you will have a disruption <laughs> to your mental health, I reckon. Yeah, no, everything is rainbows and butterflies, Carly, didn't you know? <laughs> but it was really powerful as well, having peers around me. I could say, oh, my God, my mental health's kind of turned to shit right now. I haven't been sleeping for like two weeks, help. And it just being as if I shared I had a really crappy lunch. It was just not a big deal. And I think that was also really helpful in keeping me connected to my goals for future study. Which makes perfect sense. We know from research that internalizing our emotions strangely doesn't actually help alleviate them. What? <laughs> so being able, yeah, have you heard this, Carly? Like being able to speak no. about your, your difficulties in a safe, non-judgmental space, like it, it makes a difference. This is a bombshell. <laughs> <laughs> Mine's been blown on this episode. <laughs> but like the reason why we're laughing about it as well is because like we're so we so easily apply that to our clients. We're like, yes, I am doing such good therapy right now. I'm listening um actively. I'm providing a safe, non-judgmental space. So when it comes to ourselves, we're like, oh no, 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 no. I couldn't have a safe, non-judgmental space. <laughs> No compassion for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. It's literally like that. Yeah. It's so, it is. So I mean, like the uh, like the perception that I get amongst our field, and we will talk about how it's made maybe there's a generational change here, but definitely when I entered the field, I felt like this was a highly stigmatized area. You do not talk about your experiences of mental illness. If you do, do so very carefully, keep it guarded, don't talk about it. What were the messages that you received? All of the above. I literally was waiting until I had my registration in my hot little hands and before then you could not have invited me on a podcast and have me talk about this, I promise you. Not if you were going to pay off my hex debt or help debt or whatever, I would not have done it because I felt like the stakes were too high. Yep. I agree. I did the same thing. So when I did the interview for my master's of professional psychology from so the fifth year, I my, one of my approaches, you always think about interviews beforehand, but I was like saying to myself, don't come across as crazy. Don't say anything about your history. Just keep it all in, keep it all in. And I managed to do it. And I was like, yes, got accepted. <laughs> that reinforces that I don't share this stuff. It's horrible, isn't it? Yeah, totally. It's just... Yeah, I don't know. We we are in this field, we know how common mental illness is. So why are we the exception? Yeah, let's talk about how bananas it is with some stats. And so let me just share this with you, Carly. Did you know that one in two people in their lifetime will experience a diagnosable mental illness? Checks out. Yeah. And one in five people in any one year will also experience a diagnosable mental illness. And for people under the age of 25, it's one in four. Hmm. Further bombshell, these statistics are actually an underestimate. So I know the exact study that the one in five and the one in four comes from. And what they did was they did a household survey of people in Victoria in the metro and regional areas, but it was a household survey. So the people who were left out of that household survey were people who are homeless, people in prisons, people in nursing home. Uh, university students in residential colleges, all of which we know have higher incidences of mental illness. So even though we say one in five people in any one year, it could be closer to two or three people in any one year. I tend to count up. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So it's incredibly common. If it's not you who is directly experiencing mental illness, it is somebody you love around you. But we've got this attitude in psychology that we're like never the person who is experiencing this. Like we have to be so infallible and unhuman. 
It's the, yeah, being infallible. And I think also the fear of retribution in case you are a human and something goes wrong in life because that's life. Um, but just what if I lose my license? What if I don't get this job? I've been studying for so long. What if, what if the anxieties and mistakes just seem so high and disproportionate to reality? The fear is real, though, I think. Sometimes I think that the fear is proportionate in some circumstances where mm. perhaps mm. there are people who are going to look down upon you if you have a condition. No, sorry, you're very right about that. And I think um, often um, because I have actually had such a positive experience, even with a lot of fear and a lot of keeping things secret from very particular people, I think even now I would still be very mindful of whom I share and what with. Me too. Yeah, Mm. same. I've had some very supportive experiences, but I've also had very unsupportive experiences that have really affected my career prospects, sadly. And it only takes one or two people to have those unfavorable experiences with to really, I guess, affect you. Yeah, and I think I probably haven't had many unfavorable experiences to be to be honest, because I've been very careful about who I share. So I think that I probably would have, but I've just been very calculated. Yeah, it sounds like we took the opposite approaches. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) because I was like, I'm super trusting of everybody, la la la, and then I was like, blah blah blah, and then oh, and then I've become more secretive over time. Whereas you were you were wised up from the very start. You're like street smart, Carly. I've been called that before. I don't want to brag. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. Um, but let's let's touch on that briefly. So we've got these messages that we've received coming into the profession, but we're also thinking that there's a generational change in this area. And what do you think? Like, what do you think psychologists coming into this field are expecting of ourselves in terms of mental illness? I think um, workforce attitudes and like workplace well-being is much more expected from the employer side now. Like we're expecting flexibility in our working lives. We're expecting to be able to turn off. We're expecting mental health days to be as accepted as just general sick days. And that's like the broader attitudes. But I also think that, um, you know, generationally younger people are way more open about what they might be experiencing and going through. And so to keep that secret feels a bit disingenuous and I feel there's a lot of integrity with younger generations and you know ones below us as well so I think all that is contributing and also cultural attitudes are slowly shifting we are talking about mental health on a lot larger of a scale we still have ways to go I agree that the attitudes are changing and I think younger people are almost demanding more transparency from their providers and they don't want somebody who's just a blank slate. They want somebody who they can have a professional relationship, sure, but they don't necessarily want somebody who they know, don't know anything about. I think the younger generation see that as a bit creepy. Well, it is kind of creepy when it you is. think about it. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to know every bit about my GP No. Or my- my psychologist or whatever, but I feel like if my GP just, you know, mentions that he's going to go on holiday with his family, I'm like, oh my God, nice. Hope you have a good time. Yeah. I feel like I just don't, I want to, I want some evidence that you're not a robot. That's yeah, yeah. just pretty much what I'm looking for. <laughs> and so if they yeah. go on holidays, great. Robots don't really go on holidays. Okay. I'm okay with that. 
<laughs> like, oh, you yeah, do yoga, it, fantastic. Yeah. It feels nice though. And it's like, yeah, again, I, I, I do believe in boundaries both ways. I, I'm not going to encroach on yours. You know, you share what is appropriate. I trust you that you will be appropriate with me, but it is nice. It feels like that quid pro quo in a way. I feel like I can share more because I'm getting just a little something about the non-robot proof. Exactly. And it doesn't even have to be a disclosure. Sometimes when I say to clients and I don't, I don't want to, it's not appropriate to disclose my own personal experiences, but sometimes I will just say, I really hear you on this. And that can communicate a lot. It, it might not be communicating to them that I've been through that personally, but it is really, I see you and I understand mm. what you are telling me. Yeah, it, it really is transformational because I don't know about you, but I've certainly been around health professionals who um, are probably lovely, super knowledgeable, but it does feel different when they give you just a bit of their personality or just something as well to indicate that they've lived a life. I agree. And we're just talking off air about the fact that Peer support workers make such a valuable contribution already in our mental health workforce. And so, for example, in the drug and alcohol space, I know there is a very rich peer support workforce. And often people want to go speak to people who have been through those experiences of addiction because they know how hard it is to uh, manage an addiction and then resolve it, essentially. And you were also saying that peer support workers are very big in the perinatal and postnatal space. And that makes sense, right? Because these are two really um, huge life experiences or things that people can go through. So it makes complete sense that people currently struggling with this and not seeing a way out or not really um, maybe just appreciating the gravity of what they're going through would want someone who who kind of gets it. If they don't get your exact um, you know, experience, but that's fine, but just gets it. Yes. And I think the takeaway that I want listeners to leave with from this conversation is I feel like coming into it with mental illness into this profession, you can feel like you're broken or somehow less valuable. And I just want to highlight to listeners by saying that we have such a rich peer support workforce that you're not broken. You're not like trash. You're, you're so valuable and so helpful. Yeah, I would actually go as far as to say there are probably way more psychologists who have been touched by mental illness primarily or been caring for than we would maybe anticipate. Oh, I love that. Yes. And I would agree with that as well. I I really like that because it's like we're all trying to hide it, but it's yeah. like you get us all in a room and it's like if we actually did disclose, we'd all be touched by mental illness in some way, like that statistic was, the one in two in someone's lifetime, if not you, someone you love. So we've all been touched by it. We're just putting on this facade and pretending. Yeah, I think so. And so I think like now I operate from the assumption that they might have like living active or previous experience with mental illness and self and I think um that's to me mentally that feels like a nicer space to be in I I feel like it's a nicer space to be in because it's more inclusive I feel connected rather than disconnected is that how it is for you absolutely Mm. and that's really important because sometimes you can feel so lonely and isolated in psychology in this profession Oh, yeah, especially if you're working in private practice or you're, you know, starting out as an early career psych and you're, you're wanting to get across everything that we have to do to keep our registration and then building relationships or networking might come as a, you know, fifth or tenth. But it, it's so it's so helpful, I think. Yeah. Carly, let's move on to our next section. I've got some 
Okay. I was about to reveal that. I was going to say, I've got some myths. <laughs> but we were supposed to bust it and like tussle and see whether it's actually a myth. But I've just told everybody that they're all myths. Oh, well, I'm going to let's go through check. with it. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's do it. I've got a bunch of stuff that I just wrote down off the top of my head that I've heard, I've heard all of the following that people have said, whether I've read it or heard somebody directly. And I just want to address each of them because I don't want listeners to go away with, oh, but I'm still defective. I want listeners to go away with, yes, you can be a good therapist if you have lived experience. Love it. Let's go. Therapists with lived experience are less effective than therapists who don't have lived experience. What are your thoughts? myth busted it sounds like a cognitive bias because I guess there is such a range and spectrum of what mental illness is like for you and for me I was just busy 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 saying yes to everything so I was probably way more effective than uh, I don't want to hit my own horn right but I was just overworking (laughs) (laughs) overworking high achieving trying to prove that I deserved to be like a psychologist and working in mental health and that's not the case for everyone, but that's, it's just, yeah, there's no real data behind that. Mm. So no. Yeah. I've literally looked this up because I was curious. And so there's no research to say that therapists with lived experience are less effective than therapists without lived experience. There's no difference in outcomes. There's, there's just nothing. So it's just, it's just a myth. Mm. Likewise, I was going to say that I actually also did so much volunteering. I volunteered at a hospital. I loved doing that. And I volunteered reading to kids um, who were behind in their reading. I did so much other stuff that I can't even remember now, but I remember just being like, yes, yes, I'll do that. I'll do that because I wanted to learn and really get on top of my own mental health. Yeah, same. And I love it. Wouldn't have taken it back, but, you know, it's, yeah, it's not a kind rumour to perpetuate. It's like fake news. It is. I agree. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So myth busted, you're not less than if you have lived experience. Okay. Next potential myth that we know it's a myth. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Therapists with lived experience will disclose too much. I find that interesting. Um, And again, busting this one because we're taught, um, it's hammered into us through our training, through our education, just to make it about the client. You know, the client's coming to us for their time, their mental health. It's about them. So I guess this would be more of like a character thing. I don't think it's like those with lived experience. You've got some people who just love to have a bit of a yarn and will just make everything about themselves. I don't think this is um, specifically therapists with lived experience disclosing too much. And there's no data for that as well. There's no data. And I agree just from an anecdotal perspective that I think it's a character thing too. Like I don't, I couldn't conceive that therapists with lived experience would just feel the need to talk about themselves. This is another negative judgment of Mm -hmm. people with lived experience being like, oh, they can't help but talk about themselves. It's like, yeah, we are trained to know that this is the client's time and we need to act in the best interests of the clients. Sometimes self-disclosure is in the best interest of the client, but oftentimes it might not be. And we're adept at knowing the difference. 
That's right. And it goes, it's even for if you don't have lived experience, like we're also told that sometimes some self-disclosure, it could even be what kind of animals that you have, yeah. are really helpful for the therapeutic alliance. Yeah, I remember, I mean, just to sidetrack, I remember when I first started working with kids and (laughs) and, um, I brought it to like a case, a group case consultation, and I remember saying something like, oh, the the child is asking me like what my favourite colour is and what my favourite animal is, and I felt really bad because I told them what my favourite colour was and my favourite animal was, and everybody in the group was like, yeah, you do that with kids. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I was like really scared. And I was like, oh, no, no, shit. I've told this kid my favorite color, like self-disclosure. Oh, my God, you poor thing. You're in bed like, I'm going to get my license. <laughs> yeah, I totally was. I was like, shit, I could see it in the headlines. It's like psychologist loses registration, tells clients her favorite color. but they were like no bro it is crucial to build rapport with kids who don't know who the hell you are and what you're doing to disclose your favorite color and favorite animal and I was like phew (laughs) (laughs) exactly so yep (laughs) okay um next one Therapists with lived experience won't be able to handle the emotional load of therapy. So this one comes from like that they're so, therapists with lived experience are so uh, vulnerable, I guess, that they can't, they can't cope, they can't hack it. Mm. I think um, with therapy and learning to be a psychologist in general, you taper up to taking on people's emotional kind of stuff. So I think lived experience or not, you get trained to be able to handle the emotional load of therapy because it is a lot. It is. Lived experience or not. I find it highly unlikely that in your career as a psychologist, you will not have any client who has a similar life or similar emotional or psychological problems to you. So that just feels like, yeah. It feels like a mean judgment, really. Mean. Yes. Uh, I agree. Like, I think therapists with lived experience, they will know what pushes their buttons or what triggers them. So, for example, if they've had a history of a particular trauma and then they go work for the centre for that particular trauma, they might find that they are emotionally triggered more than they would be outside of that setting. It would be good for the therapist of lived experience to know what their triggers are, what just causes them to be a bit more emotional. It could even be good for therapists with lived experience. Like they might be more aware of it through their own personal journey with mental illness or caring for other people. It's important for, really, it's important for all therapists to be aware of their personal triggers. Honestly, I thought it was really helpful learning about what my triggers were by working with particular groups or particular ages, particular people with different backgrounds. That's finessed my work I know exactly who I will take referrals from and what modalities I choose to favor because of whatever I actually think it's helpful this is my experience Um, I'm sure that there are some therapists um, who might struggle with that but it's a learning thing it's not a finite kind of skill yeah like you're there and you've reached the top of the mountain yes yeah, it is a learning it is a learning thing and you learn as you go along and a really important part of being a psychologist is reflective practice. That's right. Mm. Yeah, I think in answer to that that statement therapists with lived experience won't be able to handle the emotional load of therapy. I don't think it's specific to therapists with lived experience. It's we we could all potentially not be able to handle it and it's something that we learn and work work on. Yeah, agree. Cool. Okay. Therapists with lived experience will confuse the client's experience with their own experiences, so be less able to help them. 
yeah, busted. I feel like this is just transference and counter-transference dressed up in like a stigmatizing rumor. You know what I mean? I think it again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> it just seems mean. And it's like, well, it goes for those without lived experience as well. It's not just, yeah. And it's not just triggering topics either. Like let's say a client's describing going to Coles and then you, yes. you went to Coles and then somehow you're thinking about your Coles and they're like <sighs> talking about their particular Coles. So you could confuse your experience to the client's experiences anything that they're describing. I actually do this often when people talk about like getting stuck in traffic. I'm like, it's freaking worse. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, I do that too. <laughs> yeah, so sorry. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, it's so true. Uh, but it's it's just a human thing as well. I wouldn't say, I'd say it's judgy to be like confused. Mm. I'd say that it's normal and expected that when somebody says something, that's going to trigger your own memory of something. That's how memory works. That's and right. uh, a therapist who is remembering to keep the space for the client and acting in the best interest of the clients will note that memory has been activated, decide what to do with it, and then put their attention back onto the client. That's right. Boom. Busted. Yeah. yeah. Okay. This one, I've got some research um, backing, but I'm curious to hear your opinion. Therapists with lived experience are more likely to engage in unethical behaviour. This also just sounds mean. I would actually, I would actually, this is just based on vibes, not on data, um, that they are less likely to because I guess um, of the implication and their own lived experience. But I'm keen to hear data. Yeah. So there was an article published in 2020. What these researchers did was they got... 275 Australian mental health professionals, mm-hmm. pretty much all psychologists, to complete an online questionnaire battery. And they looked at the, they gave them some questionnaires. Some questionnaires were sexual boundary violation index, boundaries and practice scale, boundary violations propensity questionnaire, brief inventory of pathological narcissism, <laughs> impulsiveness scale, <laughs> bunch of stuff. Okay. So what they found was that males were 2.5 times more likely to engage in unethical behavior than female practitioners. And there are unique predictors for each un- unethical behaviors. So for male identifying folks, the predictors were grandiose narcissism, vulnerable mm. narcissism, self-centered interpersonal traits, and low levels of empathic concern. Yeah. For, yeah. For female identifying folks, the unique predictors were impulsivity, self-sacrificing interpersonal traits, oh, yes. and vulnerable narcissism. Mm. Yeah. So not lived experience. Mm. Nope. Not mentioned there. Mostly narcissism. Mm. Traits. Yes. Traits. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So not circumstance, not there's something wrong or broken with you, is that these are traits. And I just want to be um, kind to listeners. If you recognize, like a lot of us will recognize ourselves in the self-sacrificing interpersonal traits, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so guys, yeah, it doesn't mean that if you have one of these traits that you're going to be an unethical practitioner. No. It's Again, it's knowing yourself and being able to recognize how that could lead to possibly like uh, bending over backwards for clients and then potentially breaching boundaries and really discussing that with a trusted supervisor or PR who you know you can feel safe with. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So I just wanted to bust that myth that Love it. Yeah, that lived experience folks are more likely to engage in an ethical behavior. There is no evidence for that. Okay. And next one, final one. 
Therapists with lived experience will use their own expertise for interventions rather than use evidence-based interventions. So this this one I was trying to get at being like a therapist with lived experience would just be like, oh, I know what will work because I had an alcohol problem and I know what worked for me. Um, are therapists with lived experience more likely to do that? I'd say no. And again, because of our training and education, we know what the gold standard, well, gold standards are for particular diagnoses or behaviours and I would say no, just based on that. Like we have to actually report what we do and why and the rationale for case planning, formulation, for Medicare reporting purposes. I don't, yeah. Yeah, could you imagine a report like under Medicare being like, <laughs> I've given John Smith uh, like, I don't know, some wacko therapy because I did it and it was real great. He also needs yeah. like vitamin complex and I don't know, tarot readings daily. <laughs> crystals because it worked for me yeah exactly yeah because it worked for me yeah oh god (laughs) report signed um yeah so I I agree I don't look when you're a therapist with lived experience here's how I think of it that I've got my stuff clients got their stuff so I'm always doing this separation thing and I know that what worked for me will likely not work for other people because we're all unique and we've all got these unique circumstances. So even if, say, we have the same diagnosis, let's say I had depression and a client had depression, it's not the same depression. It's very different. And we both might have low mood. We might have lost interest in our activities, but the drivers and the things maintaining that would be completely different for each of us. So we'd need a different approach. That's right. And it just comes down to that individualized approach that I feel we all do. I, yeah, I feel like we do that really well. Yeah. So it's just that just seems like another kind of like misinfo, disinfo kind of thing. And it's like, who who are the lived experience haters? Who are you? I know. <laughs> Show <Yeah>. yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's because when I when I unpacked it in myself, I was like, what are the people who are lived experience haters? What are they judging us on? And these are the things that I came up with. I'm sure there's more actually, but mm. these are like if you ask them to pen down their concerns, I reckon that this is some of the stuff that they would write. Yeah, and it's just under that umbrella term really of like being an unprofessional, inappropriate yeah. worker. And it, it, uh, to me that it's actually just so insulting because I find that when – people who have lived experience do go into caring roles it's because they really want to do so much good yeah like sometimes people there is this wounded healer archetype that people talk about a lot in psychology so the idea that people who are wounded go into the profession so they can better understand themselves but I would argue like there is an element I feel that I do better understand myself having been in this profession, but it wasn't a main driver and certainly whenever I meet with clients the main driver is helping them yeah, I think, um, you know, I think ultimately humans, irrespective of if you're a psychologist or not, I think you do want to understand yourself better. So, I, yeah, even if there is a part of you that does identify with the wounded healer, like there are multiple, we contain multitudes. I know, yeah, I don't think it's wrong. Uh, like, yeah, again, I feel yeah. like it's uh, brandished as an insult, whereas yes. it's like it's not wrong to want to understand yourself. It's the same as like in our profession how we get, judged if we want money it's like it's not wrong to want money it's not Not wrong to want to understand yeah to understand yourself I feel like it's in the same vein but we're just made to feel shame for these things which are which are very normal things yeah so it's just such wasted energy and time it's like well instead of you judging me or you know having these assumptions how about you just see the work that I do and talk to us talk to a lived experience psychologist who is public facing about it get to understand the data get to understand the field and see what comes out of it. Preach. Yeah, because it's like, 
I just feel, I feel almost a uh, sorrow and compassion for any folks who hold negative judgments towards lived experience therapists now because it's so common. So they must feel so isolated and disconnected because literally like all of their peers would have like a lived experience and they might as well, but they're just too caught up in the self-judgment. Yeah. And it's, you know, that whole like regressive um, belief thing, like, you know, the times they are changing. So yeah. what are you going to do? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We ain't got no time for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you for engaging in that myth busting session with me, Carly. I just want to do the final wrap ups for the podcast and talk about some practical tips for listeners based on our discussion. Love it. So one of the things that I just wanted to get across with listeners was really just know your stuff. And like we talked about earlier, this is a process. It's a process of getting to know yourself, what's happened for you, how that might come up in the therapy space, unpacking that with supervision or therapy or through your own personal processes. And really just taking care of yourself. I don't think it's a liability to have mental illness, but also just knowing yourself that say you your mental health does take a, a tumble and then you find that you're really struggling to come up for air and you're kind of drowning. Then that's really important time to engage your plan and be like, okay, I need help. And, you know, you might talk with your doctor or trusted colleague about taking some time off and doing what works for you. I fully agree with that. I just think if you can talk to yourself with that kind of like brutal compassion or radical compassion and that honesty that we would provide our clients with if we noticed that maybe they needed to attention their own health and well-being, if you can do that to yourself, you will be in good stead your whole career. Carly, is there anything else that you wanted to get across to listeners to leave them with? I would like listeners to just um, feel proud if you have a lived experience or living experience I'd like you to please feel proud that you've gotten to where you are wherever you are in the mental health field and find people who you can trust that are working alongside you um, to be able to be yourself with because that will also help you when it comes to just life coming at you the way life does. Mm, That's beautiful yeah we support you listeners you're you're part of us you're part of our profession you are welcome. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is so sweet. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I love this topic so much. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much, Carly, for coming on and really unpacking this. I'm so glad we could discuss this topic because I just, yeah, like I said at the start, I feel like it's something in the background. It's something that I think every person with lived experience will ask themselves at some point. And so hopefully this is a very validating episode that Carly and I, we got your back. We're here for you. Yep. You can be a fantastic therapist with yeah. experience. Yep, absolutely. Um, thanks again, Carly. Thank you. And thanks, Mental Worker listeners, for listening in. Have a good one and catch you next time. Hey, Mental Workers. This is a huge shout-out to the legends who have joined my Patreon. Patreon is a platform where you can connect with creators who deliver the content that you appreciate. For $2 a month, you can help directly support the podcast and all proceeds go back into making the show. I'd like to thank Amanda, Nita, Natasha, Alan, Claire and Katerina. You're amazing and thank you so much. If you would like to support the podcast and join up as a patron, there's a link in the show notes.